The book of Ruth. Are y'all ready to have a little fun? Y'all want to have a little fun as we look at the word? Let's look at the book of Ruth. The book of Ruth is, get your Bibles, get your iPhones, get your whatever you got. Make sure you've got your word up. We got to look at the word this morning. And so we're going to look at the book of Ruth. Now, the book of Ruth is one of two books named after women in the entire Bible. The book of Esther is also named after a Jewish woman who helped save Israel. And the book of Ruth is named after a Moabite woman. Now, that's amazing in and of itself. We'll talk a little more about how and why. But the book of Ruth begins in chapter 1. We're going to look at verses 1 through 5. And then we're going to walk through that. Now, I have some very practical application that I want to challenge you with this morning coming from the book of Ruth. So... Get your, get your pen ready, get your notes ready, get ready to take some notes and ask some questions as we go through this too. But let me read it to us first, the book of Ruth, chapter one, beginning in verses one, going through verse five. It says, in the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land and a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab. He and his wife and his two sons and the name of the man was Elimelech and the name of his wife was Naomi and the name of his two sons were Malon and Chilion. They were Ephratites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other was Ruth. They lived there about 10 years, and both Malon and Chilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. That may be the most depressing five verses you could ever read through in all of Scripture, right? So I've titled this sermon, Three Funerals and a Wedding. We'll get to the wedding at the very end, all right? Now, now guys are already saying I'm headed for the door. I don't like weddings or funerals, but hang in there, all right? This is, this is an incredibly, this book, we may come back and hit this book at some point in time just because there's so much in it, and we'll go through the entire book verse by verse. But it says in the beginning, in the days when the judges ruled. Now, what does that mean? Well, if you have your Bible open, you flip back one page to the end of the book of Judges, chapter 21, verse 25, it says, in those days, there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. What does it mean to do what's right in your own eyes? In Israel, what this meant was the people in the businesses had two sets of skills. If you're going to bring in something and they're going to buy it from you, they would pull out one set of scales that would weigh it a little bit light so that they could get more money. If they were selling something to you, they'd pull out another set of scales that would weigh a little bit heavy so they could get more money, more profit from it. They were economically corrupt. They were politically corrupt. They were religiously corrupt. It was a time when they did what was right in their own eyes. And if you do what's right in your own eyes, you end up in a postmodern world where every person says, I have my own truth. I have my own way, but there is no universal truth. There is no universal way. And that ultimately ends up in chaos. And that's the time that we have here. So you say, what does the book of Ruth have to do with modern times? Doesn't this sound an awful lot like where we are in modern times? Everybody did what was right in their own eyes. It was the days when the judges ruled and there was a famine in the land. They had economic problems in the land. People were having a hard time finding food, hard time finding a job. And so it says that a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab. Now that's a problem. Let me tell you why that's a problem. Bethlehem means house of bread. And so you have a man whose name is Elimelech, as we're going to see, and Elimelech means my God is king. So a guy named my God is king who lives in a place called the house of bread is going to go and travel to Moab, which is a city that is called in Psalms God's wash pot. 
Moab was started when Lot got drunk and slept with one of his daughters and the Moabite people resulted from that incestuous relationship. Who wants to go to Moab that is a believer of the one true God? And here he says that he goes to sojourn in the country of Moab. In fact, Moab was so bad that their God's name was Chemosh. And you know what they did to satisfy their God, Chemosh? They would take live babies and they would sacrifice live babies to the God of their land so that they could appease his wrath so that he wouldn't pour out his wrath upon them. Sacrificing live innocent babies, Chemosh, the country of Moab. So he took his wife and his two sons, and the name of the man was Elimelech, my God is king, and the name of his wife was Naomi, whose name means pleasantness. And the name of his two sons were Malon and Chilion. Now let's be honest about this, all right? How many of you like biblical names? How many of you have a biblical name out there? I have a biblical name, although, you know, my parents called me Thomas, and that's like the doubting one, so I'm not sure that's a really good biblical name. But these two biblical names here, don't use them, Okay. I mean, first of all, Malon and Chilion, that kind of sounds like Klingons, right? I'm expecting a Star Trek episode to take off here. But Malon and Chilion mean sick and dying. Now, who in the world names their kids sick and dying? Can, can you imagine at the dinner table, hey, sick, go get your brother, he's dying. Come on. Bring him, bring him to the table. Sick and dying, not names that you want to... Biblical names are good. I like biblical names. I've used them for my children as well, but... These are not two that you want. And so, Malon and Chilion. If you have trouble remembering this, just remember that Malox and Chili go together and you'll get close enough. And you know, I'm just kidding. That made no sense. Anyway, we're having fun. They were Ephratites from Bethlehem and Judah, and they went to the country of Moab and remained there. Now, don't miss that word. Let's think about what's happening here. What's the text telling us? In verse one, it says they went to sojourn. In verse two, it says they remained. And then we're gonna learn a little later on in verse four that they stayed there about 10 years. Here's what's happening. You've got a guy who's leading his family and there's an economic famine in the land and he's having trouble and he leaves a place that's called the house of bread and he goes over to a place called Moab, which is much like Vegas of the modern society and he takes his family and he says, we're just gonna go there for a little while. We're not gonna stay there very long. We're just gonna go sojourn. But then that sojourn turns into a remaining and then that remaining turns into 10 years. And before you know it, they've looked back and a decade later, they're still in a place that is not honoring God, that is not fitting for God. Now, here's my first application to you today. When you turn your eyes away from God and you turn your eyes to what the world has to offer you and you say, oh, I'm just gonna dabble a little bit into sin. I'm just gonna dabble a little bit in being away from God. I'm just gonna look to what's wise in my own eyes for a little bit, just a sojourn. Then what ends up happening is that sojourn into sin, that sojourn away from God, that sojourn into your own wisdom turns into a remaining into your own wisdom and a remaining away from God. And next thing you know, it's been a decade and you're away from God and you wonder how in the world did I get to this point? How did I get so far away from God? How did I get to my life being this messed up? And it all starts way back here with the little bitty sojourn of looking away from God. He looked in human wisdom. You know, they were only 50 miles apart. It's likely that the reason there was a famine in Bethlehem is because God was bringing judgment upon Bethlehem at the time. And instead of getting right with God, instead of turning to God, instead of serving God, he looked out to Moab and in his earthly wisdom, he said, I can take my family over here and I can go over here for prosperity. But instead of going for prosperity, what he found was that he died. 
And then his children took Moabite wives, which was forbidden in scripture. And then they died. So the man made an earthly decision to use earthly wisdom for the health and protection and financial prosperity of his family. And it resulted in disaster. If you're here today, that look away from God, that sojourn, that, oh, this sin's small. It won't bother me. You know, crossing the line in this dating relationship, it's okay. Making a bad decision to go here, it's not a big deal. That sojourn, that turns into a remaining. That turns into a decade away from God. It turns into tragedy. And so I urge you not to do that. Moab started with a man's incestuous relationship. You know some of the other stories about Moab where Balak was called and Balaam and They were called to condemn Israel. They sent the Moabite women down eventually in Numbers 25, and 24,000 people died. This was Moab, God's washpot. Deuteronomy 23 and Nehemiah 13 says that Moabites, in Deuteronomy it says Moabites could not enter the temple for 10 generations. In Nehemiah, it doesn't repeat the 10 generations. It says that somebody from Moab could never enter the temple of God. They were forbidden. They could not come into the temple. The law excluded them from being into the temple. And here, this is where this man took his family. And when he took his family there, they remained there. And Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died. She was left with her two sons. They took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Oprah. I mean, I mean Orpah. Now, there's a funny story here. Not that I'm out to dog Oprah or anything, but it's just a funny story. See, Oprah's name was actually Orpah on her birth certificate. She was named after this person. Do you know that? And because it was difficult to pronounce, they changed her name from Orpah to Oprah because it was easier to pronounce. And so, I don't know, that doesn't explain the text, but that's a tidbit that you can know that very few other people know. And the other name was Ruth. And so they lived there about 10 years, and both Malon and Chilion died. Well, what did you expect? You named them sick and dying, right? (laughs) Names have meaning in the Old Testament. That's the reason this is the case. And so they died. So the woman was left without her two sons. Now, what happens? Now, I'm not going to read through all of this, but I'm going to tell you the story. You probably know the story, but just as a refresher, let me remind you what happens. She arose with her daughters, then in verse 6, she hears that there's food in Bethlehem, and that there's, since there's food there, she decides she's going to return back home. When she goes to return home, the two daughters say, we'll go with you. And then in verse 10, she says, no, uh, but will you return to your people? Naomi said to them, turn back, my daughters. Why would you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Now, look at what's happening here. I think this is important. You have Naomi saying to the two daughters-in-laws, if I had children tomorrow, are you going to wait till they're 18 or till they're grown men so that you could get and take them in marriage because that was the custom of the time? You look out for yourselves. You go back with your own family. And here we see the case where Orpah looked at her and Orpah went back, kissed her mother-in-law and went back, but Ruth clung to her. And then we have the words that are used at weddings all the time. And I have no clue why we use these words at weddings because it's a daughter-in-law talking to a mother-in-law. But it's Ruth says to her, do not urge, in verse 16, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God, where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. Now, we use that at weddings because that's a case of just unconditional love. That's what we see Ruth demonstrating here for her mother-in-law. Now, there's also an application here. I don't want to be careful making this application. But this application is this. Ruth, at this point in time, was a single female. In this society, 
that would have been even more of a problem than ring by spring in Cedarville society, okay? And here she made a decision not to go where she was likely going to find a guy, but to serve the one true God and to sell out for the one true God. And at the end of the book, you all know what happens. So my word to you today, ladies, if you're here and you're single, don't go out looking for any old bozo. Make sure that you follow God with all your heart and find your Boaz. Is that good? Don't settle. Don't go back to where the easy decision is. Because ultimately, singleness, ladies, if you are single, that does not mean you're lesser than anybody else. And we want to celebrate the fact that you can do great things for God and can follow God and can do incredible things. Guys, if you are single, get off the Xbox and change the world for Christ. All right? You can do incredible things for Jesus. Boaz wasn't on the Xbox, by the way. He ends up getting the girl at the end of the book. So I'm just saying, all right? Go do incredible things for Jesus. Now, at the same time, don't not celebrate marriage or celebrate children or celebrate the relationships that God gives. We, God has created you as you are to do incredible things for him all throughout your life. And here we see Ruth clinging to the mother-in-law and saying, your God's going to be my God. Your people are going to be my people. Where you die, I will die. And then look at what happens here. Naomi goes back. Naomi puts on her Facebook status. I'm depressed. Because it says how I can prove that. Verse 20, it says, Do not call me Naomi, which means pleasant, but call me Mara, which means bitter, for the Almighty has dealt bitterly with me. Now she recognized that the fact that they went to Moab, the judgment of the Lord came on them, and the Lord dealt bitterly with them because they made an unwise decision. She saw that. But what she didn't see is that things are never as bad as you think they are. She put up on her Facebook status. She tweeted out all over the place, call me bitter from now on. Now, who likes a bitter old woman? Nobody likes a bitter old woman, right? So she's saying, I'm bitter. She's going back, don't call me pleasant. That's not who I am anymore. Now I'm bitter. And look at what she says here in verse 21. I went away full. But wait a second. She went away for economic prosperity, but what she has learned is that that economic prosperity does not satisfy, that the fullness was the fact that she had a family and she had a God, and the God was the one true God and a family that loved her, and that's where fullness comes. Fullness doesn't come in the things that money can buy. Fullness comes in the things that money can't buy and that death can't take away, and that's where I hope you spend your life. That's where I hope you set your eyes. That's where I hope your prize is, is on the gospel and the things that will last for all eternity. But let me make this application here. It's never as bad as you think it is. Here she says, I went away full and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity on me? Did she come back empty? She came back with a daughter-in-law named Ruth that loved her, didn't she? You know, right now, it's that time of the semester. It's the time when all of the papers and all of the tests and all of the projects, it's that time when all of your professors have everything due all at once. And all of them tell you, no other class matters but mine. Right? That's why we all became professors, is we like to torture students. I'm just kidding. We love students, but we do tend to think our class is the most important class. It's not as bad as you think it is. 
You may be in the middle of a semester that is just, in your estimation, a bitter, bad semester. It's not as bad as you think it is. There's always somebody that's worse off, and there's always a God that's faithful. Behind every bitter storm that's above lights the sun of hope, even if you can't see it. It's still there. Here we see Naomi. Chapter 2, got to skip. You know what happens. Boy meets girl, girl meets boy. Chapter 3, some good principles on dating we may come back to eventually down the line just because they're fun, and some of them are really hilarious, and some of them are really controversial, and you know how I kind of like that, so we may come back to it. Chapter 4, what happens? They go back. Ruth is an incredible woman of God. She meets a man named Boaz. Boaz becomes an Old Testament picture of the kinsman redeemer. Now, what is a kinsman redeemer? You hear that concept because Jesus is our ultimate kinsman redeemer. Boaz is a picture of it. A kinsman redeemer has basically three characteristics. A kinsman redeemer has to be someone who is able to redeem. It has to be someone who is a close relative, and it has to be someone who is willing to redeem. An Old Testament picture of Boaz because he was a close relative. He wasn't necessarily the closest, but he was a close relative. The picture of Jesus as the ultimate kinsman redeemer is that God became man in the flesh so that he would be like us, so that whatever he assumed in the God becoming incarnate is that's what he saved. He became fully man and fully God so that he would be a close relative so that he could be our kinsman redeemer. At the same time, he has to be able to redeem. And this is why God becomes man because only God can redeem us. It took somebody fully man to identify with us. It takes fully God to live the sinless life and die and be that perfect sacrifice on a cross, the perfect lamb of God slain for the sins of the world. So fully God, fully man, willing and able, close relative. And then it says also the third part here is that he has to be willing. You can't force the kinsman redeemer to redeem. Jesus says, I laid down my life, no man takes it from me. And that's the ultimate picture of the ultimate kinsman redeemer that we have here in the book of Ruth. Now let me jump to a conclusion right quick and then we'll, we'll wrap this up. Chapter 4, verse 13, we come to a wedding. It says, so Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife, and he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, which is odd that they're talking to Naomi here, right? Naomi, the bitter one, who used to be pleasant. But they say to Naomi, blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer. And may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child, laid him on her lap, became his nurse, and the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now get this picture in mind. The Moabite woman, the person that those from Israel would have ostracized the most, marries Boaz has a son. They named the son Obed, the father of Jesse, the father of David. The son is the grandfather of the great King David of Israel. It gets better. Who's David in the lineage of? Jesus. And so God takes what the law would exclude or what man would exclude and through grace and through mercy includes all of that into the very lineage of Jesus. Now, how in the world is it that Boaz would have wanted to marry a Moabitess woman? 
Well, look down at the bottom at what it says in verse 21. It says, Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. Jesse fathered David. If you looked at the Matthew reference to the genealogies that we all skip when we go through our quiet time, if you looked at that Matthew reference to the genealogies, you would see that it says specifically that Salmon fathered Boaz from Rahab. Rahab the harlot was Boaz's mom. And I can only imagine that Boaz, when he was walking through town with Rahab the harlot as his mother, looked around and saw the way that some of the people were looking at Ruth in an ungodly manner. And when he looked, he had to see and identify in his heart the compassion of the gospel and a compassion of grace because he understood some of the very things that had been said about his mom were things that were now being said about this Moabite woman who was demonstrating a faithful, unconditional love to Naomi, her mother-in-law. What's my point to you? My point to you is that the story of Ruth is our story. In that how we were all separated from God, separated by sin in Moab, and God came in the form of Jesus Christ, the man, as the ultimate kinsman redeemer to reconcile us, someone who God should have nothing to do with because he created us and we violated his laws. We sinned against the holy and righteous God, but yet the love of God is so great, the love of God is so powerful that it doesn't matter what you've done, it doesn't matter how bad you are, it doesn't matter what you think, it doesn't matter matter, the thoughts, the sins, the history, all of that matters not because God is the God of redeeming people. God is the ultimate kinsman redeemer. God is our hope and our salvation. And God loves you and can use you no matter what your past is. So if you're here right now and you're wondering, can God use me? The answer is an unconditional yes. Put your faith in God and live your life for God and watch as God does amazing things just like he did in Ruth's life. Maybe you're here today, and this has just been a tough, tough semester. You've got all the hardest teachers, and you don't like your academic advisor right now. Maybe you're here, and you're going, I'm just spiritually dry. I just, can God do something? God takes the weak things to confound the strong. God takes the roughest semesters to grow us the most. God takes people who are willing to sell out for him and he does things they could never possibly imagine. Here's what I want you to think about. Are you sojourning away from God? Are you just grabbing a hold like Ruth did and clinging to the one true God and saying, God, use me. And I don't care what you've done. I don't care what your history is. I don't care who you are. I don't care where you come from. You grab a hold of God and you cling to God and you say, God, I want to be used. God will use you to do more than you could ever possibly imagine for him. That's the God we serve. You don't know the things I've done this semester. God does. And if you ask forgiveness, he is faithful and just to forgive you. Cleanse you from all unrighteousness. And that's what it's all about. Don't waste your life. Be all you can be for the God of Bethlehem. Let's pray. Dear Lord, I do pray. Father, I pray for all of our students, our faculty, our staff. Lord, I pray for myself that, Lord, when we are tempted and we tend to look and we look away at the things that would cause us to sojourn and then remain and then be away from you, 
God, when we have things that cause us to be bitter, Lord, it's never as bad as we think it is. And so, God, I pray that you would just touch our hearts and help us to see the reality of your grace and your goodness and help us to cling to you even in the worst of times, to realize that, Lord, ultimately you are in control, ultimately you have a plan, and that no matter how bad it is, Jesus is still on the throne. God, use us. Use us not only here in Cedarville, but use us to change the Midwest, to change the United States, and to change the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ wherever you have called us. And I ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.